Welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. Another day, another episode of the Growth Equation Podcast. Today, we are going to be talking about how to read more and how to read better. So um, this is for all the readers out there and the listeners, if you're an audiobook person, there's definitely some overlap. All right. So let's get excited because, Brad, I know this is one of your favorite topics because it is one of your favorite things to do. Read. Yeah, I love reading. I love drinking coffee, lifting weights, and reading. And sometimes you spend the rest breaks in between lifting weights reading, which is a new tactic. But Yeah, that is true. Um, that is true. All right. So let's dive into into it. Um, so how to read more and read better. And what we're going to try and establish here, I think, is just the different practices that both uh, Brad and I use to consume information, uh, how we do it to retain information, and what our reading habits look like, and hopefully pass along some wisdom to you guys to help you uh, read more and read better. And I think this is incredibly timely and important because if you are a listener to the Growth Equation podcast, you know that we place a ton of value on reading, and it's something that I think um, is almost pushed away to a degree because of our modern online social media world. So we're going to try and bring back reading a little bit. Yeah. All right. So there's so many different places that we could start. Um, I think the first place that I want to start is just making a quick two-minute at most case for reading. And it's pretty simple. All of the most successful, wisest, I would say kindest, most empathetic people that I know, both personally and that I know um, virtually um, through their work, they'll read. And they'll love reading. And they read not as something that is just a hobby, but something that is a fundamental part of who they are, their daily routines. Um, and I don't think that it is necessarily correlation. I think that there's some causation there. I think that reading regularly does make you smarter. It does make you kinder, more compassionate, more empathetic. Um, and I think that it makes you a better thinker. So... I could show and tell all kinds of data and evidence on that. There was a wonderful book published by Nicholas Carr um, about a decade ago now called The Shallows. And in it, he um, went deep on the push away from reading and particularly reading longer things to more short form internet stories and um, just presented all kinds of empirical research around how reading is very much associated with deep thinking. So rather than bore you with those studies, if you want more proof, uh, check out Nicholas Carr's book, The Shallows. But um, yeah, so that's why reading is important to me. Awesome. And there's all sorts of uh, good research, too, that actually validates what you just said there on empathy in reading, especially reading fiction tends to increase your empathy. Um, the only thing I'd add to that is I think it's not only deep thinking, but it also um, increases your breadth, right? Because it takes you to places, whether fiction or nonfiction, uh, places where you normally wouldn't explore. Because what tends to happen in our life is we go down this specialization route, we get a job in a specific area, and then our 
our kind of domain solidifies there. But reading allows you to explore this breadth of work and information that then allows you to connect things, uh, which then allows you to perform whatever your specialty is better. So it's not only the depth of thinking, but it's also kind of giving you this base of foundation to get more connections, more creativity off of. And I think another way that reading helps with breath is that it provides context to ideas. So uh, what I mean by that is a tweet, an Instagram post, a short YouTube video, a Facebook post, they tend to be really short and devoid of rich context. And I think a lot of what we see in the um, quote unquote cancel culture wars um, are often about a lack of context. So you could say something and it could be seen as really derogatory or um, flat out wrong in and of itself. But when you put that four sentence blurb into a greater context, it actually might be um, a very in good faith question or inquiry. Um, So for example, if I were just to tweet, lose weight, I'd probably get canceled. And for good reason, maybe. Like telling people to lose weight out of context is kind of an asshole thing to do. And not everyone can lose weight and not everyone wants to lose weight. If I wrote an entire book about metabolic syndrome and the challenges of losing weight and the benefits of losing weight and how weight gain and weight loss has such an impact on mental health. And somewhere in that book, the words lose weight appeared, I probably wouldn't get canceled. Yeah. And then one other thing that I want to mention before we go into maybe some of the practices is why reading is so important um, or why it allows us to have this depth and breadth of thinking. And I think it is because the activity itself lends itself to focused and deliberate like thinking, deliberate work. Because when you sit down, whether you're reading a book or an e-reader, your focus and attention is on this book, whatever it is, right? So you have to kind of think through. It's not passive consumption, really. And I think this is one of the differences between uh, listening to audiobooks and reading a book. And if you look at the research, you listen to or you talk to people, a lot of times audiobooks are really good for maybe enjoyment or enjoying a fiction. But if you're reading something out of depth, you, you miss cues, you miss communication, you miss information. And that's because it's a lot harder um, to direct your attention to audio listening only for a prolonged period of time. If you're sitting there with a book, it's a lot easier to just kind of pick up everything you need. Yeah, a hundred percent. And that goes back, man, goes back very far to the printing press and the shift from oral culture to the written word. Um, And at one point in time, we were significantly more prone to being able to pay attention orally when oral culture dominated but we're now a few hundred years removed from that, um, and our brains have adapted quite fast to to the written word, as as Steve has said. So, um, all right, that's good enough preface. Reading is good for you um, for a whole variety of reasons. Um, a lot of people struggle to read, and I think that um, one predominant reason for this is something that I mentioned earlier people don't necessarily think of reading in the same way that they do is another practice. They tend to think of reading as 
again, I'm going to read while I'm waiting in line, or I'd like to read this book or that book. Uh, the people that I know that are what I'd call successful readers, they tend to be pretty regimented about it. It's like I read X days a week around this time in this place, and I do this in perpetuity. So I don't think that I think reading is the kind of thing um, that doesn't necessarily happen naturally, but needs a little bit of structure around it. I think that's especially true in today's day and age when there are so many alternatives that offer the feeling of like knowing something or getting smarter or being involved in a conversation, but aren't the same, a la most things on the internet. And I think one thing that might also get in the way is that most of our exposure to reading count comes through school. Right. And, and don't get me wrong. There are some phenomenal English teachers. My wife teaches first grade English and language arts and teaches kids to read phenomenal teachers out there. But a a lot of what happens is your exposure to reading is almost being like forced into reading these books that, you know, are decades old that don't seem too interesting to you. Um, so you have the same, or a lot of people have the same feeling that, you know, doing math work would be, right? So no one wants to sit down and do some homework in math. A lot of people get this idea and connect reading, especially nonfiction stuff or older fiction stuff to almost like this homework-like feel, which turns people off to the experience of reading. All right. So then how do you find a good book? What what do you tell people if they're like, you know, I'm not reading as much as I want. Brad and Steve have convinced me that reading is a good thing. These guys seem to read a lot. They don't seem like total douchebags. I want to start reading, but it always kind of feels like a chore. So the thing I would tell them is, is pretty simple is I was in that position once as well, where I hated reading, despised it, didn't really read anything at all. And the reason for that, I think, is I didn't have an expansive enough knowledge base to connect things back to. And what I mean by that is reading becomes interesting once you can connect things among different books and ideas. So if I was if I was telling someone, okay, you know, here's my advice on how to read more is a I would start in your area of something that is interesting interesting to you, something that catches your eye, something that you say, hey, this is something I want to learn or know or develop about. And then I would say, start branching out tangentially, right? So for example, to give you an idea, if I love running, which I do, and I'm not a big reader, I might start with, you know, some running related book, right? On maybe a biography of uh, Steve Prefontaine, for example. And then I might branch out, okay, we're looking at running-related biography. Then I might branch out into something that's a little more tangentially related, maybe on the Olympics at that time period or whatever have you. And then you branch out from there and you start to be able to connect these different ideas and it makes the reading a heck of a lot more interesting until you're just exploring ideas. I think that's great advice. Um, don't necessarily read what everyone else is reading. Read things in the area that interest you. And then as Steve mentioned, um, there's a real inertia or momentum to it, right? Because most good books reference other books. So then suddenly now you might want to explore a certain um, subsection of a book more by reading the source of that. 
Um, another way I think that is good to read is to ask people around for authors that they really like and start by reading a single author's work. So um, you might say that, hey, all my friends are telling me that I should read Eric Fromm right now. So I'm going to read Eric Fromm's five most popular books. Um, and then I'm going to move on and read uh, a bunch of Mary Oliver poems. And then from there, I'm going to read Maria Konnikova because she's the Growth Equation Book Club of the Month. And um, reading by author, I think, is another really good way um, to, to get going because it allows you to go really deep on generally, let me, let me pause. Generally, authors write about similar ideas or at least tangential ideas in, in a similar style. So it also allows you to see how one person's thinking evolves over time, which is really cool. Yeah, you know, one thing that I'd also recommend um, that I think plays off of what you just said is have different books that are of different genres or styles that you're potentially reading or open to reading at the same time. And if you think about this in terms of watching or consuming TV or some show, it makes sense, right? Sometimes you're in the mood for, you know, some TV drama. Sometimes you're in the mood for a superhero movie flick. Sometimes you're in the mood for a documentary. The same thing, I think, applies to reading in the sense that sometimes you might want to read some fiction, sometimes some poetry, sometimes some hardcore nonfiction science. And I think the mistake we, we often make in reading is we select one and then are like, okay, I'm going to go all in on this until I finish it. And if it drags in the middle, we just kind of plow through and it becomes a very unpleasant experience. And what I would suggest is, just as you might not, you know, binge watch an entire season of a TV show all in a row and you might intersperse it with other shows, do the same thing with chapters of your book. If you get tired of something, well, move to a different genre and see if that sparks, uh, sparks your interest and keeps you motivated. Yeah, I think the only thing that I'd say there is that um, for me personally, and a fair amount of people that I've had this discussion with, it becomes very hard to read multiple books that are of the same type. So I think most people find it a lot easier to, let's say, be working on a novel or a book of short stories, fiction, one nonfiction book. And if you're going to do something like poetry or a religious book or uh, something that kind of is outside of those two realms, great, then that can be your third. Um, it depends on how people's brains work, though. You know, a more associative thinker might actually really enjoy reading like four nonfiction books at the same time. Um, another kind of brain might say, hey, now that I'm reading this book, I'm seeing things out in the world and I'm relating to it. When I do go on the Internet, I'm seeing things there that I relate to it. So I'm kind of on that nonfiction train and I'm on that fiction train and I'm on that like poetry, spiritual train. Um, so I think there's probably just a, a, a personality temperament, um, matching process there. Um, okay. So the next thing to address then I think is, um, fiction, nonfiction. So we write nonfiction books. Our book club is nonfiction. We do nonfiction recommendations every year. So it's not surprising that a lot of people will email me and Steve, I'm sure you get these emails too and say, hey, looking for book recommendations, I only read nonfiction. To which I say, well, 
I've got some great ones, but have you considered fiction? Um, so I'm curious, and I'll get back into why I often respond like that, how you think about fiction versus nonfiction. So I largely don't read fiction books. And the reason for that is pretty simple. And it's something I've said on this podcast before is that I am a notoriously slow reader. So if I read something, I am doing it for a purpose. Now, that doesn't mean I don't think fiction books are good. I do. But my fiction books tend to be in the genre of what I'd call running fiction, like the once a runners of the world, right? Because that's something- Hold on, book lovers. Don't drop. I'm going to come here to allay your concerns and soothe your soul in a minute. So if you want to read a fiction book, then go pick up John Parker's Once, Once a Runner and read that. But in all seriousness, what I tend to do- um I call it instead of making a fiction, nonfiction kind of divide, I tend to divide it in terms of things I'm kind of focused on for learning and things I'm focused on for more enjoyment. So enjoyment could be for me like a good biography or a good history, like, you know, kind of thrilling history book that's nonfiction. And those fall in that category of where I don't have to like actively think too much. Um, but, but it's, you know, it's uh, different from the nonfiction books I tend to consume. Yeah. Well, first off, Once a Runner is a great book um, for whether you're a runner or not. I think it's one of the better stories just about someone that becomes obsessed with the craft and um, what that leaves in its wake. So what I would say is that... Big reason that I read more nonfiction than fiction, and I think so many people can fall into this, is because if a nonfiction book is medium, you still get a lot out of it. If a nonfiction book is bad, but the subject matter is important, you're still going to walk away learning something. If a fiction book is medium or bad, it is very tedious. And unfortunately, many of the best novels are big books, so they're intimidating. So I don't think um, that fiction or nonfiction is better or worse. I'd argue that, you know, even if you read fiction without a quote unquote purpose, you end up getting so much out of it because a good novel writer can just insert you into the story. I think that's where so much empathy comes from. So um, I think there it's around just being really selective, perhaps, around novels. Um, So like if you haven't read The Corrections by John Franzen, go read The Corrections. Like there's no way you're not going to love that book. Um, Read Middlesex by Jeff Eugenides. No way you're not going to love that book. Um. Read Middlemarch by George Eliot. Definitely have some coffee and give yourself two hours to get into it, but there's no way you're not going to love that book. Um, so yeah, I think that that's maybe a, a bar or excuse me, a barrier to, to fiction is that I think that fiction really has to be good, whereas nonfiction can just be okay and you can still get something out of it. And that's why we uh, we write nonfiction, so we can just be okay. <laughs> Oh, man, I'm going to write a book called um, 
once a Steve Magnus. <laughs> you know, but you brought up something in there that I think is really important is that a lot of the hesitation is almost like it's it's the perception of like, okay, I have to sink in days, weeks, sometimes months uh, in this pursuit. And especially with a large fiction book, that can be really intimidating. And it can often, it you know, prevent you from even taking that first plunge into it. So I think your framing on what you're trying to do uh, with your reading is important. And then I think the other part is giving yourself permission to give up is also important. Yeah, Yeah, I was just going to go there. So, okay, so these are two rules that I have for reading is that if you're starting a new book, I want my first time reading it, I want to have at least an hour to read and I want to do it at a time when I'm really awake and alert because I want to give myself a chance to get into a book. If I start a meaty book before bed as I'm falling asleep versus in the morning when I'm fresh and I just had coffee, my experience of the beginning of that book is going to be so different. Um, So any kind of new book, I try to start when I'm fresh. And then uh, the second rule is, and I don't even know, I heard this maybe 10 years ago and it seems to just work really well, is that the you should give a book a hundred pages minus your age before you quit. So if you're 30, you owe the book 70 pages. If you're 50, you owe it 50 pages. If you're 99, you have enough wisdom where you can quit after one page if it rubs you the wrong way. Uh, so that's my rule. So right now I read, you know, 66 pages of a book before I quit. Um, yeah. I, I like that. I love that rule. I'm on it. It also gives, you know, something to look forward to as you age. I can I can quit things easier and earlier. <laughs> Come on, man. Um Yeah. In in so so there's that around starting a book. And then just in general, back to reading being a regular practice or a routine, um, it's really hard to just pick something up and spend like six minutes in it and then put it down and then come back to it two days later. There's there's no rhythm. There's no flow. Uh, the quality of your interaction with the material is going to go down. So I think that um, I sound like a broken record here, but no different than uh, physical practice or um, a writing practice or a spiritual practice. Uh, reading is best when it's consistent. Um when you give yourself at least 15 to 20 minutes to kind of groove in, make progress, let those connections in your brain start happening before you you tune out. Uh, there's nothing wrong with like reading in line at the grocery store or I guess pre-COVID like on public transit, uh, but it's going to be a very different experience than actually sitting down with the purpose of reading, giving yourself time, giving your brain time to calm down. I know sometimes... When I sit down to read, the first 10 minutes, I have like monkey mind and I'm reading really slowly. I keep getting distracted um, and I just have to keep coming back to the book. It's like a meditative practice. And then it's like, oh, my brain realizes that like all that other stuff can kind of calm down and I can get lost in the book. It's like going for a run. You know, sometimes the first mile feels really bad and you're just like, I don't know how I'm going to get through this next five, six, seven miles. But once you kind of warm up into it, your body and mind accept that, like, this is what you're going to do, then, you know, it falls into it. And I think that is a also big like thing. having sex when you have young kids and you're tired all the time. <laughs> okay. There goes Brad. For the non-runners out there. So, anyways, 
Um, I think that that is a big barrier, though, because I think a lot of times people sit there and read and they're like, oh, my gosh, like my mind's going all over the place. I can't concentrate. I just want to fall asleep. This is going to take effort. What if I don't like it? You just got to just got to get into the groove. And the next thing you know, you're like, this is awesome. I'm so glad I'm doing this. Yep. So it's 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 like getting out the door for exercise. You just got to be consistent about it. Sometimes you got to push through a little bit and things will get easier, smoother as as you do. Especially who knew we were think, doing who knew we were doing relationship therapy, Steve. Yeah, who knew? As, especially I think I can't tell if you're more, talking about sleeping with someone or reading or running or all three. I think uh, this is, this applies especially during um, or now in our, our modern modern world of social media on always online because uh, we read differently when we're always online than we do reading a book. When we're online, we tend to scan and shift, right? When we're reading a book, we're not scanning and shifting, and it's almost like your brain has to adapt to that new state and get rid of that, like, oh, I need to look for the next uh, nice little nugget of information or the next tab or the next whatever yeah. thing that pops up. All right, I'm going to go on a little tangent here, but it's 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 a good one. And um, this is from our mutual friend, Kelly Sturat. And Steve, I was actually talking to you about this on the phone because we were just joking around about like reading and exercise and sex. And what Kelly said is that he is observing like an erosion of what he calls like original creative good stuff. So he's like, Billboard Top 100. It's all the same garbage. No one has the patience to listen to a full album anymore. There's so much richness in a full album. No one's having sex because they go to Pornhub and they get the dopamine hit or whatever. They take care of themselves and they can watch another video the next day. It's easy. It's all the same crap. Then he went on to fitness and he's like, everyone wants a new fitness program every day. No one wants to go deep. It's all the same crap. Then he went on to reading. That's why I'm going on this tangent. Same thing. You know, people just hop on Twitter. They don't even have the patience to click on the freaking link to the short article. They just read the tweet. It's all the same crap. Um, So I think at its core, like reading, like making love, like getting better in an athletic pursuit, like listening to a full album or getting to know an artist's work, it is like this deeper, richer experience that has um, a little bit more friction up front, but pays off in the long run so much more than, you know, the the, the proverbial top 40 Billboard 100 bullcrap. Not to say that some new songs aren't good, but most aren't. So how I would go about, you know, looking at that is... It's almost like passive consumption versus active intentional consumption, right? The Billboard Top 100 is great for like background noise as you're driving in the car and mindlessly don't really care, you know? For a lot of people, that that's what it is. But it's not so great if you're sitting there, you know, trying to listen and enjoy the depth of the music, to give you that example. I think it's the same if we're looking at the online world of, well, Twitter is great for what it is, which is a very quick hit survey of various information, inspiration, and whatever have you, quick takes. But it's not good for like active, intentional consumption of things. And I think what's happened is we've kind of intertwined those two, right? Um, in a way that 
it used to be, you know, separate to a degree. So I think coming back to, okay, what do we do about this? Like everything's kind of generic, bland, surface level, et cetera. I think we have to be very, very intentional on when we are utilizing this kind of passive consumption and when we are utilizing um, the active kind. Well, if you're listening to this podcast all about reading, uh, you might be interested in becoming a Growth Equation Patreon member. As you know, this podcast has no sponsorship. We want to stay fully independent. We want to be able to bring you things in performance, health, well-being, sustainable success that actually work. And that's not a supplement or bed sheets or a special mattress. What it is is good information, community, and deep pursuits like reading. So in order to fund this podcast, we have an exclusive community. As a part of that community, you get access to special things like exclusive ebooks, signed copies of our own books, a monthly book club where we have live discussions with authors such as Cal Newport, Maria Konnikova, Judson Brewer, Ryan Holiday, Katie Milkman, and so many other big name authors with really good provocative ideas. And you can also participate in a quarterly mastermind group where we bring together an intimate group of individuals all committed to this path of mastery to work on big problems together. So if you'd like to become a member of our group, please go to www.patreon.com slash the growth equation. You can learn more there. And for as little as a coffee, depending on what level you choose, maybe a few coffees a month, you get all this great stuff. You read more, you read in a structured way, and you help keep us ad-free. All right. Yeah. So I think that the next thing to to hit on then, Steve, would be um, a little bit of like how you get into that zone when there are so many distractions, both uh, internally and externally. So I'm kind of curious, like you're a distractible dude. You still have Twitter on your phone. You have an Instagram account. Like how on earth do you get your brain kind of on the track of reading a book? So I do something that I steal from our uh, peak performance book, which is try and prime myself into a reading state. Okay. That means I tend to read in the same kind of places. So I either read in bed before I go to sleep, which I know Brad doesn't like as much, but I do that. Or if I'm reading in the in the day, I tend to read in the same chair, which is away from my computer, separate room from my computer, leave my phone away, etc., and just have a pen, piece of paper, and my book in my hand. And I'm trying to prime myself with the environment around me to to try and get in that state. The other thing that I think is really important is I'll try and create some space between being on my phone or being on my computer and the act of reading. So sometimes that space is as simple as like going to do the dishes or, you know, putting up the laundry, something to separate my mind from like what I'll call Twitter social media mode and this like deeper thinking, um, uh, reading mode. So I think that is incredibly important because what I've found if I go straight from my phone to a book, man, it's I get I just get that monkey mind and it's really hard to sink into that book. 
Yeah, I I tend to do something somewhat similar. I um I try to read it like the same time every day. Um and I don't bring my phone into the room where I read just because uh, as we wrote about in our book peak performance out of sight is out of mind and even if the thing is face down and turned off the mere sight of it is definitely a distraction. Um and then I love coffee and I still get a big ergogenic, excuse me, boost from caffeine. So I will often time um, my reading with some coffee uh, just because it, it definitely helps me stay awake, which has been hard. You know, I'm training physically pretty hard. The hardest I've been training in a long time. Uh, got a three-year-old. I'm also training a six-month-old dog. We just move. So there's a fair amount of housework. Um, so I'm finding myself more fatigued than usual. And, um, maybe I should be taking a nap and maybe I'm not following our own evidence instead of reading. Uh, but I've kind of realized like this is a season of my life. And if I want to read, I might need some, some help from coffee and coffee is just great. And the latest research shows that you literally cannot drink enough coffee. I guess if you have like 20 cups, you're, you're bad for your cardiovascular system, but otherwise coffee, totally healthy. I feel like coffee is like eggs. It's like, you know, eggs are bad, eggs are good, eggs are bad, eggs are good, eggs are great. And then we just kind of settled on great. So hopefully, hopefully coffee stays there and the pendulum doesn't swing back. All right. You know, one of the other things that I'm a little bit curious about is uh, what your process of reading looks like. So I mentioned I have a pen and a piece of paper in my hand. And what I use is I literally fold a piece of paper in half. On one side, I write notes. On the other side, I write key takeaways. And what I do is I just kind of, as I'm reading along, I outline or underline passages and then write the page number and then put them either on the notes or the takeaways. The difference are the takeaways are stuff that I want to like, it's almost like the really big important things. And I'm like, okay. I can utilize or I'm going to use this for something that I'm working on now or in the future, most likely. And I use that as my bookmark until the uh, until the book is done. And then I copy those notes and takeaways and put them in a large word file where I have all these key elements for all these books. And that is my system. That's a great system. Um it's elegant, it's simple, it's electronic. So if your house burns down, you won't lose your notes. Presumably you can do like a control F search function um, and easily find a particular topic too. Um, so like all things in the Brad-Steve relationship, my system is not nearly as technologically savvy or elegant, um, but I'd argue that it is just as good. So um, what I do is... When I'm reading a nonfiction book, I don't underline fiction. Fiction, I just try to get into the story. Um, I underline passages that I find interesting, that I connect to other ideas that I think I might use in presentations, in my own writing, in a coaching session, something that I want to tell Caitlin during dinner, you name it. Then what I'll do is I'll take a little 3M sticky note and I'll flip it upside down. So the sticky part's on the bottom. And then on the top, I'll write uh, one word to two sentence note to myself. Like, here's the killer quote on such and such, or great way to conceive of the flow state. 
or um, really interesting on cognitive deficits in soldiers coming back from war. And then I will pop the upside down sticky note on the top of the page. And then when I pick up a book, it's basically like a Rolodex of these sticky notes that have a little one liner that is going to remind me about what is on that page that I found so interesting. Then the next phase of this is on my bookshelf, I group books by topic. So if I have a writing topic on community, I go to the community section of my bookshelf. If I have a writing topic on something that relates to like humanistic philosophy, well, I got a ton of like Eric Fromm and George Leonard. If I want to write about something that relates to Buddhism, then there's Tara Brock, Jack Kornfield, Sharon Salzberg. Um, so the bookshelf kind of becomes your Word document. Um, the downside is if my house ever catches on fire or floods, I lose all that. And I've actually thought about this um, because I've heard other authors with somewhat similar physical methods talk about how they're rolling it over virtually for that reason. Um, but I'm neurotic enough as it is that I think I'm just going to run the table and hope that that doesn't happen. All right. Let's hope that Brad's house does not burn down for many reasons, but most of all so that, you know, you don't lose your, your book collection. All right. Where should we go from here? So we've talked about our systems uh, for note-taking. I, I want to pause. I think that that's so important, whether you use an electronic system or a physical system, to have some kind of grouping because it's the answer is always in a book. You don't have to pay me and Steve to coach you. You can, but we're just going to tell you stuff that we learned from books. So when you have a thorny problem in your life, if you have a way to go and access what great minds thought about that problem or how they wrestled with it, odds are you'll get on a better track to a solution than you would yourself. So once you have that organization, then whenever a problem comes up, you don't have to be a writer. You could be the most traditional nine to five worker and suddenly you have an organizational issue or you're not sure how to um, interact with someone in a meeting based on XYZ situation well, then go to the leadership section or go to the uncomfortable conversation section um, and revisit your notes and boom, you might just have like the killer quote that then you can go reference. And, you know, I think that's important because I think it's not only reading, but it's kind of going back and reviewing that is important, right? And revisiting. Um, it's not just, hey, I'm going to read this book once and then forget about it. It's it's now this part become part of this resource. And one of the things that I like to do when I'm working on like a major project, like, for example, uh, writing a book in myself, is I will then go to that section of we'll call it your li the library you you kind of described. And I will group, you know, I will take the big takeaways and put them in a Word document for a whole topic. So let's say I'm trying to understand, I don't know. Uh, how motivation works, right? I'll pull out 15 books I have related to that topic and just pull the, pull the, you know, all the important notes and takeaways that all relate to the topic of motivation. Just so I have, it's almost like this, this quick reference on, hey, here are the big things that really smart thinkers thought about this. And that really helps the clear, my clarity of thinking and my depth of thinking on on a certain topic. So whatever system you have, I think you have to see it not only as, hey, I'm going to read this and hopefully underline and or remember it, but 
it becomes this reference, this resource, which you can tap into when you're saying, okay, I want to go explore something to a greater depth and uh, utilize this for something. Yes. Um, okay. I'm going to make like a hard pivot, but it's another topic that I think is really important to address. And that is uh, the ability to pay attention and get into a book is very similar to any other skill or muscle. And it gets better as you use it. And if you're really well-trained and then you step away from it for a month, it's going to detrain and you're going to feel rusty. So what this means is that if you're relatively new to a deep reading practice, start small, maybe start with 20 to 25 minutes a day, be patient. It probably won't feel great for the first little while. Eventually it will. This also means that if you are a historic reader, 100 books a year and you have twins or triplets like our friend Jojo, and suddenly you can't read at all because you've got triplets or twins, um, you take it on a new job, whatever it is, then when you come back to reading, know that you're going to feel a little rusty and it's going to take some time to get back into quote unquote reading shape. Um, I think also similar to training, once you develop a really good foundation or base of reading, it's probably easier to get back into it. My guess is if Bill Gates stopped reading for a month, it would still be a little uncomfortable the first few days back, but he'd have an easier time picking the habit back up. Yep, exactly. I think that's a, a brilliant point and something important. It's amazing to me how similar all this stuff is, right? This practice of reading and going deep on reading is very similar to the practice of lifting or running or exercising. And well, I think it's a practice. And I think that's, again, like I've said it a million times, that's where people get screwed is they kind of hold reading kind of lightly and they don't take it seriously. And then they never really get into a good groove. It's no difference than like dabbling in exercise. Yeah. And it's one of the, one of the reasons why I think emphasizing consistency or even when you're, you know, super busy struggling to find time, et cetera, is just finding small bits so that you keep that, that kind of mental muscle engaged to a small degree, knowing that maybe next month or next week you'll come back at it. Versus giving up things wholeheartedly, which makes it more difficult to come back to it. Yep. Uh, I think that having goals of I want to read this many books in a year can be both really helpful and really bad. Helpful because there's something really neat about being like, I want to read a book a week, 52 books. Bad because someone tells you to read like War and Peace or The Power Broker and you're like, I can't do that because there's no way I'm going to hit my my annual reading goal. Um, so if you're like super goal motivated and you think that that's going to get you on a good kick, especially if you read nonfiction, most nonfiction books tend to be between 200 and 300, 400 pages, take a goal. But if you find yourself turning down books because they wouldn't help you meet your goal, that's a great time to get rid of that goal. Um, there have been years when I've read 80 books. In the year that I read War and Peace in Middlemarch, I read maybe 20 books. Um, and that was my best reading year ever because I read those two books. And those are great books. Um, okay. We're just kind of doing rapid fire, but I think people like this stuff, Steve. What do you, what's your take on rereading? So instead of rereading, I tend to reread my notes and my takeaways and skim through things. I do that quite frequently. For rereading, I save it for the important text. Like there's there's a couple like seminal books or texts that I'm like, okay, 
I've forgotten a lot of this or like I need reminded of this and I need to go back and 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 read it. So I'm not a huge read rereader unless it's something like very seminal. For instance, you know, in my own coaching world, there's probably a handful of books which I'll reread every five, six years because like I'm like, okay, I need to like re-engage with this information at a deep level. I remember the surface level instance of it, but I'm going to pick up something new when I go through it again, or I'm going to be reminded of an important lesson that uh, maybe has slipped my mind for a while. So I do that a lot. I, I do that with a couple of texts, but for the most part, instead of rereading, I will reread the notes, reread the important passages, maybe skim a couple paragraphs or even a chapter here or there on something that is relevant to whatever I'm exploring. Yeah, I like that. Um, I'd say I'm pretty similar about that uh, with one exception. And that is every year for the last like six years, I've reread um, the book Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance in Lila. And Every year at this time, I, I generally reread those in December. Like so, in April, like right now, I don't want to reread those books because I've read them the last six years. But then December or November rolls around, and it's just something that I do. Um, and those two books are, are very formative for me. And every time I, I reread them, um, I have a different experience with them. Um, that's another thing, uh, man. I wish I could attribute this quote, but I forgot who I heard this from too. But um, it's right book, right person, right time. And I think that's so important. And I think that's where um, a lot of like high school education, at least when we were growing up, I don't know what it's like now, kind of missed the mark. Like we were trying to read the classics in high school. I remember reading Brave New World, Aldous Huxley, which is now one of my favorite books. And as a junior in high school, like, not really understanding what the book was about. Um, and rereading that book as a 35 year old or whatever, it's like, Oh my gosh, like this is the most prescient book about what's happening in society that there is. So I think that's an important point And it goes back to something that I talked about at the beginning is that in high school with brave new world, you had, you didn't have the experience or the knowledge to connect it to anything to make it uh, impactful. Right. And I think that's part of the problem with the classics is for a lot of the classics, not all of them, but for a lot of them, there's a disconnect in in high school age students or whatever age you are when you read them. You don't have things to connect it to. Or life experience. Yeah, exactly. Or life experience to connect it to. So I think it's important as you're reading things to understand that different, but the same book will mean different things to you at different periods of your time uh, of your growth and development and different periods of your life because you have different experiences or different knowledge bases to connect that information to right even you know my favorite fiction book once a runner your only fiction book that's right it it meant something completely different to me when i was a high school kid reading that then I, you know, then if I read it right now, right, the meaning is different, even though it's the same exact book. Yeah, um, 100% true. All right. Well, what else on, on reading? It's really important. You should do it. 
it's best to treat like a practice, like so many other great things in life. Um, there tends to be some friction at first, especially because there are so many uh, easier, quicker hit of dopamine, superficial solutions. Um, but if you kind of get through that friction, the payoff of reading a really good book is worth it. You get a deeper understanding of a topic. You often get a deeper understanding of yourself, of your community, of others' points of view. This is stuff that you don't get on Twitter. Um, you don't get on Facebook. Uh, I'd argue that you don't even get reading like a newspaper column or a magazine article. And I write for newspapers and magazines and there's a time and a place for that, but it's a different kind of understanding. And one of my fears to echo, um, you know, that what Kelly said and, and we shared earlier is just that reading books kind of goes away and conversations are happening on a more um, a more superficial level. Yeah, I mean, I, I share that concern with you. I think it's the the depth versus su- superficial problem that I think a lot of people are worrying about now. I mean, you can kind of see it in this attention level, but it's it's interesting, you know. But I'll, I'll say this. If you look at, let's look at TV consumption, right? I would argue the depth of TV shows is now greater because... You watch them on Netflix and Serial, you know, like you can binge on them versus when we were growing up when it was like, okay, I have to wait a week for this TV show. So they were more like one offs. And now you have like depth of storytelling that is is greater. So that just popped into my mind of one area where depth seems to be expanding. Yeah. Um, in TV, I, in, in TV, like it's the golden age of TV, and we've talked about um, on this podcast, like The Crown. In um, what was the show about the young woman chess player, The Queen's Gambit? There have been some phenomenal TV shows. I think that TV gives you not only the words; it also gives you the images and the people. So my experience is it's less of a conversation with and more of an enjoyment of. So if I'm watching a TV show, I'm enjoying it. I might have some profound insights, but I'm still watching the thing. If I'm reading a book, I am generally having a conversation with the author. And if it's a fiction book, I am seeing all the different characters in myself. Yeah, I mean, they're they're two totally different mediums. And I would say one is more passive, where it's being fed to you. And one is active where you have to create it. And there's value in that active in that creating it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree. Man, are we just getting old? I feel like I sound like, you know, the the coach that I had when I was 18. It's like, nothing is the same. It's all superficial. Um, <laughs> you need to read more. That's probably exactly what he said. Probably. I mean, we are getting old. Maybe we'll get grumpy soon. Uh, <laughs> We'll we'll see, but I, I you know I think I think there's a lot of some of it might be getting older and wiser. You know, high school me would have been like, read. What are you talking about? I'm not reading. Like, give me once a runner. That's all I'm reading. Everything else sucks. Like, that's a waste of time. But I I, I think there is a moment in time where the world has evolved, changed. Technology is changing stuff. We're being pushed towards the superficial. So. You know, I'm sure every generation feels like this, 
um, with the invention of the TV and all that good stuff. But I think, you know, I think there's some data behind it where the internet, phones, et cetera, has really altered things to a high degree. And some of that is good. And some, you know, we just have to be cognizant and aware and, and don't get caught into the too much passive superficial consumption and make sure you're doing some active like depth consumption as well. Yep. I think that is a really wonderful summary of, um, of the broader topic and in, in, in remembering that candy always tastes better than brown rice on the first bite. But after an hour, you wish that you had brown rice. Um, and I think that, uh, little snippets of information out in the internet are candy. And I think the book is brown rice. We talked about how that applies to more intimate human relations. We talked about how it applies to exercise, how it applies to art and music. Um, I really think across the board, um, there's a push towards superficiality in no small part because superficial things, um, have large profit margins. You make a lot more money selling advertising on Twitter than you do as a publisher selling books that took an author two years and cost you $15 to produce and you sell them for 20. Um, sex is free. Pornhub makes a ton of money. The Billboard Top 100 algorithm or whatever the advertising is on Spotify, they make a ton of money. Uh, an album that you used to buy for $18, not as much of a profit margin. So just remember that, that the, the candy is where the profit is. And generally where the profit is, um, the depth goes to crap. Thanks for listening to the Growth Equation podcast. Learn more about our work and find show notes at our website, www.thegrowtheq.com. Follow us on Twitter, at B. Stahlberg and at Steve Magnus. And if you like what you listen to, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, as this goes a long way in helping it reach others.